Hey everybody, Justin here. I just wanted to tell you about one quick thing before we get to the podcast. It's something that people have really been enjoying, so I thought I should tell my podcast listeners also. Since so many people are stuck at home for the pandemic, something that I'm doing is I'm hosting totally free, open to the public, group work sessions. It kind of sounds weird at first, but we, what we do is we meet on a Zoom call, and for four-hour sessions, we all just work on our own personal intellectual or creative projects. It's surprisingly useful to just make yourself productive and make get much more done than you would otherwise. And yeah, everyone so far pretty much has been unanimously giving me positive feedback. Uh, and it's also fun too. We take little breaks and chat, and it's often an eclectic, interesting group of my internet friends and passersby. So if that's something you'd be interested in, you're more than welcome to come through. We are doing it on Tuesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern for four hours. You just have to register. It'll take you only two seconds. There's a link in the show notes below. All right. Hope to see you there. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Other Life Podcast slash a Primal Poly podcast. We're doing a little collaborative venture here. We have been holed up in the house that we live in together. Me, Jeffrey Miller, and Diana Fleischman. We haven't seen many people on the outside world in quite some time, but we are going to now talk a little bit about what everyone has been watching, the infamous Tiger King documentary, docu-series on Netflix. Uh, we posted this on Twitter that we're going to be recording a podcast and we received a ton of questions and comments and we made a note of the ones that we were most interested in. So we have a rather long agenda of social scientific questions, uh, human interest questions, and then of course just the topics that we're interested in discussing and debating together. So we are going to break down Tiger King. Anything else by way of introduction? Well, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of different topics. Um, the show's appeal, why people are into big cats, the sort of um, ethics of big cats and zoos. We're going to talk about the cult-like nature of, of some of the organizations, the dark triad personality traits of the lead characters, um, the polyamory or polygamy angles, and then... Um, yeah, all, all kind of stuff like that. And um, by the way, I'm Jeffrey Miller. I'm an evolutionary psych psychology professor at University of New Mexico. And, Hi. Um, <laughs> I'm Diana Fleischman, and I'm also an evolutionary psychologist. And I also was a pretty militant vegan, and I thought a lot about animals and how they should be used over time. So this was super interesting to me, as well as the response that people were giving. And this is also one of the areas that I've changed my mind most about in the last few years is the treatment of animals and the treatment of animals in captivity. So I think we should kind of begin at the beginning. What is Tiger King and, you know, what's going on? Why is it so popular? Jeffrey? So this has been the number one series on Netflix um, for a number of weeks and particularly during this uh, time of cloistering or quarantining. This is April 1st, 2020. Um, you know, the coronavirus pandemic is, is launching. Uh, two thirds of the states are on some kind of lockdown. People are desperate for diversion of some sort that has nothing to do with viruses. So they seem to have been watching this and it's a real cultural phenomenon, um, that has fascinating characters, fascinating ethical issues. It's kind of a, cross-section of a lot of aspects of American culture that people from other countries might find really bizarre. The, the, the amount of, you know, drug culture here, the guns, the libertarianism, the, you know, 
sort of psychopathic and narcissistic personality traits. There's just a lot going on in this series. And just purely the space that we have to keep large animals if we really want to. But I think that this this reminds me a little bit of there's a lot of series in Europe where I lived for a long time that are like, look how crazy Americans are. And this is kind of a look how crazy Americans are for uh, Americans. And I sort of love reality TV. I don't want to, but I do. And Jeffrey tends not to. And I don't think you really, you don't really watch much TV at all. So this is kind of an unusual confluence where Justin and his wife Aria were watching tons of it. And then they recommended it to us. And then we ended up watching it. And so one of those rare things where we all love the same program. I would say this is not just a picture of, you know, those crazy Americans, but drill down into the craziest Americans and then find the craziest Americans among those craziest Americans. And then you're, you're getting close to what's going on in this documentary. I mean, let's just be honest, apart from any intellectual observations, this docuseries is just filled with some of the most crazy shit ever. And it's all there in one kind of grand fiasco. It's sort of irresistible, right? So it's not just the coronavirus, but I think, I think it, it, it is just a particularly remarkable uh, set of human experiences registered in this documentary. And also, you know, all of these characters are like three or four Sigma outliers in terms of so many traits. Yeah. And yet, also, they've sort of found each other in this big cat culture somehow. And there's this sort of assortative socializing, you know, the creation of networks of, of these people who have um, really, really odd personalities. And for at least for Diana and me as, as psychology professors, it's really illuminating to see just how much genuine diversity there is in psychological traits. This is not like superficial demographic diversity. Almost all the characters are, are like, you know, white English speaking Americans, but this is deep, deep psychological diversity. People who live their lives in really strange, unusual ways. Oh yeah. I didn't introduce myself for your channel, for your viewers who might not know who I am. I should say my name is Justin Murphy. I'm a political scientist and I think for any political scientist, there's obviously a lot to chew on here. So whether we talk about this from a psychological perspective or from a more political science perspective, I mean, this is just like an, a never ending all you can eat buffet of uh, fascinating uh, phenomena to dissect. So do you think that's enough by way of introduction and we should get to the questions or what's well, I maybe just think we, ta- yeah. we should talk about the kind of the main characters. So the main characters in this program. And by the way, if you haven't watched it already, I don't know if you could say you can spoil Oh yeah, Something. spoiler alert, right? We're gonna, we're not gonna respect that, right? We're gonna talk about everything. We're gonna talk about that, everything, so, yeah. and, and also I, I don't know if it's really spoiling, if it's all stuff that's happened in real life that there actually has been news about. Also every single American has already seen it, so who cares? Yeah, really. Um, so I think that people are really interested in this when they're being quarantined. It's just so fascinating, and there's just so much rich, psychological diversity and i think it's that's really feeding something that people are experiencing you know when they're when they're sheltering in place but there's three main characters in this series um there's joe exotic who has multiple other names his original name is schreib vogel which means writing bird in dutch and uh there's uh carol uh, her her new name is baskins um I, I keep wondering if if howard her new husband is in any way related to baskin robbins but um, I don't know if she married two rich guys or just one rich guy. And then there's Doc Antle. Uh, he's a doctor of uh, mystical science. And all these characters, uh, except for, it looks like Carol's like relatively monogamous, but, um, Joe Exotic is a, a gun toting, uh, meth using. Alpha. Uh, al- total alpha. <laughs> 
a mullet wearing libertarian who's had multiple husbands. And then Doc Antle seems to have multiple uh, girlfriends and wives. Alpha. Also super alpha. And, uh, Carol, um, you know, had two husbands and, uh, betas. people were also saying, people were saying stuff about them being swingers too, but we'll get into that later. I'm not sure if they are. Uh, in any case, these are the, the three main characters, but there's lots and lots of other characters. There's FBI informants. <laughs> there's all these people who, um, who deal exotic animals. And I'll just start off by talking about a little bit about my experience. So I grew up around mm-hmm. animal people. My parents, my, my dad had a, had a thoroughbred and my grandpa, um, bought and sold horses for a while. I come from a family that bought and sold horses and we used to board our horses with this woman uh, who had, she used to brag 72 animals, uh, goats, pigs, uh, horses, and, and great Danes that she uh, was actually breeding for some time. And I just know what animal people are like. And, you know, tigers just really raised the ante on these things because if you have tons of animals, you can't necessarily uh, make sure that they're all they're all doing well. And these people that I uh, used to take riding lessons from and stuff, they actually also uh, did Hollywood animal training. They they supplied animals for movies. And I'll just say that the two worst things, well, two things that I remember about them is that um, for a while they were raising a piglet in their apartment called Babe. And Babe was a uh, pot-bellied piglet. And uh, one day, they decided that they were going to leave to go out for breakfast in the morning or go to work. And they came back, and they had left Babe alone with three Great Dane puppies who had not gotten breakfast. And it ended up, as you might have expected, Babe was torn to shreds. Uh, the puppies, I think, probably just started playing with her, him. They were about a year old. And then they ended up ripping um, uh, the, 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 the piglet to shreds. And they were very, very upset. There was also probably a big uh, cleaning job involved there. They also had a goat named Gidget that uh, ate cigarette butts all day. And then I ran into them at a party when I was like in my 20s. And uh, they had a golden retriever giving birth to puppies in the back of their um, SUV. And one of the puppies was already dead when they drove me home. So I think that when you have a certain amount of animals... I don't know if it's because we don't have the same empathy and compassion for animals or just because there's only a certain amount of energy and attention that you can really engage in. But you can only imagine, you know, what happens if you're breeding tigers, uh, that, that the kinds of oversight that, that might uh, necessarily happen. So we did get some tw- Twitter questions about the kind of psychological and erotic appeal of big cats. Um Connor's MMA asked, why does owning big cats confer such status? And uh, David Deppner asked, um, what's going on psychologically? What's the evolutionary psych perspective on wanting to dominate or own a dangerous predator, while at the same time knowing it could rip your arm off at any time? It's not just cats. It's like all big animals. You know, people love, uh, if you ask kids if they like a mouse or an elephant better, they like an elephant better. People love large animals, and you are demonstrating your influence. It's kind of an honest signal of your influence by having power over something like a horse or a huge dog or an elephant or something like that. It's it's just really charismatic to show that you have psychological control. I think there's a few components to this. Another one, a separate one, would just be simply having access to scarce, extremely scarce special items, really. So if you think about the parts of the series where that guy, Jeff Lowe, is going to Las Vegas. One of his hustles is he goes to Las Vegas. He packs these baby tigers into suitcases, brings them up into suites, and then charges uh, women 
uh, to come hang out with him and the, and the baby tigers. And this is part of his like sex play also. It's business also. It's very, it's very dubious. Uh, but in that case, it's clearly not so much power, right? Because there's nothing particularly intimidating about a baby tiger, but simply having access to this, it's, it's, it's like having a mink coat, right? It's like having a baby tiger is like having an expensive rare object. And that's just good old fashioned kind of conspicuous consumption kind of power, right? Yeah. It reminds me a lot of, we were in Bali and now in Bali is all these places where you can take Instagram photos and there's, there's people like Balinese people who are manning these particular photo spots to take photos with you. And I think Instagram culture probably really even increased the appeal of these baby uh, tigers right? is because with these, these models and things, they want something cool to put up on their Instagram so they can get clout. Exactly. Right. It's just, it's just rarity, right? Another thing would be adrenaline, right? That's just a separate kind of vector, right? But whenever you're doing something that's just kind of dangerous and you feel a little scared, uh, it just gets your adrenaline, adrenaline pumping. And I don't know the exact relationship between adrenaline and, and sex, but I think for a lot of people, like adrenaline is correlated with horniness, right? Well, I think it's complicated that like, if, there's a sort of alpha male and he number one has the social networking to access these animals, which are kind of in a legal gray area in a lot of States anyway. B's got the financial resources to feed these, right? And tigers cost tens of thousands of, of dollars a year just to feed them the meat. Um, and he's also got the training ability to make these things behave. That's pretty alpha. So you've got this kind of package of, um, status that's conferred by having these big cats. And also it intersects, as you pointed out, with social media where the whole appeal of these tiger, you know, cubs and, and lion cubs is people want to be photographed with them because it raises their own status on social media in a way that really didn't happen 25 or 30 years ago. So I think this all creates this market for these you know, infant and juvenile big cats that has sort of skyrocketed the last 20 years. Well, but I'm trying to get one. You're trying to get a tiger? Hell yeah. I mean, I'm happily married, so I don't need more chicks in my life, but just uh, social media power for sure. Oh yeah. What do you think? <laughs> well, well, how cool, how good would it be for my podcast if I had like a kind of associated strange animal? Um, I think it would be bad for you because they cost $10,000 a year to feed <laughs> Yeah, but shows how powerful I am. That's right. If, if that's not big dick energy, I don't know what is. <laughs> big tiger energy. So let's let's get into a little bit of the proper ev psych of this, right? And anthropologists say there's totemism, which is worship of of animals as symbols of the human spirit. That's very widespread tribally. We also know that um, big cats are just extremely salient to primates in general. Like vervet monkeys have a special alarm call for big cats that are nearby, you know, so all the other Mm. rivet monkeys sort of watch out and take care. And, and these are very, very salient animals. And then, you know, Greenpeace and other um, ecological and sustainability organizations use so-called charismatic megafauna, big mammals, mostly, especially big cats as their sort of totems Mm. to fundraise because, People care about saving these animals more than they care about, you know, bugs or grasslands or or other kinds of, of animals. Mm. So there's a lot going on in terms of human nature that, that kind of connects us to these big cats. And, you know, archaeologists have found there's lots of skulls of our ancestors that have puncture wounds in in the crania from 
saber-tooth cats. So mm. this was a legit um, risk of death for hundreds of thousands of years. Isn't there also a factor of bringing these cats onto one's fortress or property as a kind of protective layer also? It kind of it scares off uh, possible invaders or attackers to have these right we can think of we can think of examples um from movies right of like you have like a, like a tiger pit or something like this right <laughs> I, I don't know about that but i i if i was to be completely ignorant of human nature completely and i'd say do, would you think that humans would get to a point in civilization where they would revere and keep as pets animals that once predated upon them i don't know why if i would predict that so mm. i i don't think it's very intuitive but there's also i can't remember what it was called but but jeffrey and i went to a um, conference where it showed turkey circling around a killed uh, a large cat that had been that died in the road and they were really really fascinated by it and you see this with all kinds of different um, animals uh, with otters and with um, meerkats as well they're really fascinated uh, by predators and they want to get as close a look as they can at them in these different social animals and so you can imagine it's just like all dangerous things like like fire and, and predators that there's this fascination that can actually roll over into uh, into charisma and what was mm. that called where they were they were like circling the predator the turkeys were mobbing behavior oh yeah that's right yeah and you know of course also horror movies like humans love movies that depict monsters and the the archetypal monster is the big cat so anything even if it's a science fiction alien that has the same sort of sensory cues um of the big cats is very attention grabbing. See, I don't know about that because I feel like the archetypal monster is more likely to be uh, lizard like, and and we don't find them charismatic. We find them gross and icky, right? Generally, well, I think if like if there was something like a Komodo dragon that wasn't utterly disgusting and that was even bigger, and that was more dragon like, you know, if we could actually genetically engineer dragons and sort of breed them and sell them and have dragon zoos. People would go crazy for that, obviously. There's also the cuteness, though, like with tigers. They have the large eyes. They have the playful behavior. They have all those kind of mammalian characteristics that we identify with. Right. And I was always completely flummoxed by the popularity of shows like Dexter, you know, about about serial killers. People like serial killer shows, and people find serial killers very charismatic. So it's it's sort of meta that the main character in this series who does terrible things to people, that they make him charismatic in the same way that we shouldn't really love tigers. We shouldn't really love Joe Exotic. One thing I learned from this was just how I apparently tigers are relatively safe to be around. I was surprised by that. I mean, I don't know anything about tigers going into the show, but apparently a lot of these people are quite comfortable just walking around a cage with tigers. You couldn't get me in one of those things. I would, I would not walk around with a tiger. These tigers no. are, you saw that in the one scene, how they are actually using a hook to get the kittens out from under their mother when they were minutes old. Right. They are socializing them as hard as they can oh, to be okay. around humans. Is that why? If you were around a tiger, like, so the, there's a big reason why people are not in cages with Carol's tigers. Uh, Carol's tigers are, uh, and lions and other big cats that she has on uh, big cat rescue. A lot of those are people who had no fucking idea what they were doing and they had them in their backyard in a tiny cage. And so they were never socialized with people. Okay. So there's, uh, you know, there's a couple reasons why you don't see Carol around those big cats for the so, most part. So Joe's tigers and Doc Antle's tigers are relatively safe to walk around because they've been conditioned from birth to be around humans. Because they've been socialized. And that's another thing when they were really worried about the tigers being hungry and that they weren't having enough food. You're, it's, it's, 
very safe to be around these animals when they've been just fed. You know, Jeffrey and I went to uh, the monkey temple in Bali where all the monkeys were. And we went right after breakfast. And that's what they tell you to go because mm. the monkeys will be aggressive to you if they're hungry, just like people. Right. Yeah. So so I think that they're, yeah, they're only safe uh, for that reason. And you saw that scene where, you know, he had whatever sardine oil or something on his shoes and the tiger uh, started going for him. Uh, you know, cats don't really have a whole lot of loyalty. And there's no doubt at all that if you died in a house full of house cats that they would eat you eventually. Mm. They don't care. So I think a big theme with the series is just predation, the human fascination with big cats as predators, but also the human fascination with these kind of dark triad personalities, these sort of psychopaths, con men, manipulators, killers, and the predators amongst us. That Mm. was kind of a big subtext, I think. Well, maybe we should discuss this. Like, how bad are these people really? Right. I mean, ethics is kind of a, a obviously, obviously big question that kind of looms large here. And some people asked about that. I mean, Joe is actually a pretty interesting case, right? Like there's a, there's a case to be made that he's really terrible, pretty evil, manipulative, horrible person who put out a, you know, a kill order on someone manipulated and kind of arguably even vaguely enslaved of some people. No big deal. <laughs> uh, but then another, there's a totally different case to be made that Actually, these are just like pretty crazy people with very difficult lives coming from a very kind of hard, hard scrabble, working class American background. And, uh, so how much of this is evil and how much of this is just kind of, uh, wild American, relatively innocent, kind of stupid craziness? Let's break this down a little bit because yeah. there's so much to unpack here about how terrible these people are and also about how the filmmakers chose to depict one of these people in a really glowing wonderful light and not expose a lot of really terrible things about him so jeffrey's a personality psychologist among other things tell us about the dark triad what is the dark triad this is one of the questions i was asked right yeah yeah so we got some questions about um vishek asked hopefully we'll talk about the dark triad and how it applies to the characters rob seal asked about con men and how they use psychology Joshua Kessler asked about, uh, talk about sociopathy and cults, and Lee Marshall said, talk about Carol's narcissism. So the dark triad is this cluster of personality traits, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. So narcissism is basically attention-seeking. You love being the center of attention, and you love having people around you, and you're a showman, and you love the adulation. I think all the major characters have that. They're all kind of active on social media. Agreed. I think that one's clear. They all love a following. But narcissism is especially apparent when they say that Joe, they took that video of Joe on the, on the throne and he apparently spent hours and hours and hours watching one particular scene of himself on a throne. So that's, you know, kind of the, the most, I think, distilled narcissism that, Or, uh, or even driving around in his truck listening to, quote, his songs from his music videos that he didn't even actually compose or sing, allegedly. Yeah. (laughs) Colossal narcissism. And then Machiavellianism is being manipulative and exploitative and kind of using psychology to influence people. And I think all the main characters and most of the secondary characters had quite a big Machiavellian streak. Using people as a means to an end, which I would argue everybody does, but Machiavellian people are just more aware of what they're doing. Yeah. And then finally, psychopathy, which is mostly associated with criminal behavior and impulsive and aggressive behavior. Um, you know, most hardcore psychopaths end up with criminal records. A lot of them end up spending a lot of their lives in jail. And we certainly have some shiny examples of people whose 
I'll put it this way, people whose speech and behavior is somewhat consistent with having psychopathic traits. So that's a good discussion, though. I think Joe is much less clearly high on Machiavellianism and psychopathy. I think, for instance, Jeff Lowe is much higher on all three in an obvious sort of way. I think I think Joe is an interesting and kind of debatable, confusing case for one reason being that he actually had quite happy and loyal employees. That to me, that to me is a, that's a pretty strong signal. Everybody but one was happy to turn on him at the end though. Right. But those are strong, forceful external pressures under which most people would fold when just listening to the employees talk about their experience there, Mm -hmm. especially the uh, trans man who basically got amputated out of loyalty to, to the place that Joe is running. Yeah. I actually, yeah. So, so I think it's not clear. That Joe is extremely Machiavellian. There is, of course, at the end where he does seem to put a hit out on Carol. But it's in this kind of like idiotic uh, way that is largely a function of Jeff Lowe's much more sinister Machiavellianism. So that could be seen less as Machiavellianism and more as kind of uh, being duped in some ways. Yeah, Joe is very, very emotionally. He seems very emotionally invested in everybody, even though people were saying, you know, he married Dylan like two months after Travis killed himself and that he wasn't very heavily invested. But he, you know, he cries. He seems really, um, uh, really like he loves the people in his life uh, that he knows a lot about them. Uh, whereas actually it seems right. like Doc Antle seems like a better example. Uh, maybe just because we didn't see him cry or break down or have any difficult time, but he actually seems to be much more emotionally removed Agreed. from everything. Agreed. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that Joe would be happy. So one of the allegations in the, in the film and I think, or in the series, and I think it's very likely is that Doc Antle uh, has these, cubs born you know tiger and lion and ligon and tigon cubs you know those are the hybrids he has them born and then when they're around 12 weeks old that he euthanizes them um, by putting them in a gas chamber i would not be surprised by that at all but it seems like joe actually didn't do that and was very broken up about about the possibility of killing these cubs and not raising them to adulthood so i think doc Antle mm-hmm. is potentially a better candidate as a as a psychopath and i think that a psychopath would also have gotten around trying to kill somebody by putting a hit out on them in a more subtle way <laughs> than killing that person in effigy on their own cable right, broadcast right. network i mean he just he's naively I, transparent which is kind of the ob, the opposite of machiavellianism yeah and i think that's one thing that people you know that that they painted him in this endearing light and people found endearing about him is because he was so transparent about how much he wanted to kill Carol, which is not an endearing characteristic, except if you are surrounded by psychopaths, it does seem that way. Cause at least you seem more trustworthy than these other people. And, and then you have, you know, characters like Alan Glover, the handyman at GW zoo, who was actually allegedly hired by Joe to do, to do the murder. And he immediately struck me as like, just a classic bad dude with his teardrop tattoo, which according to you, Diana, not means, according to me, but yes, <laughs> means he probably committed murder. And it's it a was tiny a little teardrop though. Yeah. It was a little murky what he was um, in jail for uh, earlier in his life. But then there were some very sweet characters um, like Dylan, you know, Joe's new gay husband and uh, Joshua Dial, the kind of libertarian campaign manager. <laughs> and the fact... Who's always filmed in front of chickens for some reason. And I think, you know, Dylan and, and Joshua being in the show helped to really 
highlight just how dark triad most of the other characters were by comparison. Yeah. I guess Saf also played much the same role. Like she was just so loyal and sweet. I really, I'm, I know what I'm uh, like the, one of the only people probably that I thought Carol was fine. And I think that she's a fine person and that she's trying to do something really good and she just has better restraint. So she has some clout. She is trying to do something good and, and ethical, but I don't, people just love derogating somebody who says that they're being virtuous. And in this context, it's really funny how much they played up Joe and how much they made Joe seem really like a lovely person uh, compared to, to, to Carol. And there's a, a few different papers on something called do good or derogation where people really love to take down anyone who says that they're more moral than other people. In that particular paper, they were talking about vegetarians, that people really love to talk shit about vegetarians because they feel guilty simply interacting with somebody who's vegetarian. And so basically what, you know, what Carol was talking about was that everybody who has their picture taken with a lion or a tiger cub that ends up disliking her because they feel guilty about what they did in light of her saying that, you know, you shouldn't actually play with these animals and they highlighted her hypocrisy way more than they highlighted everyone else's hypocrisy if you look at doc antle i'm not sure about but certainly if you look at joe joe goes from saying at the very very beginning if in time but at the end of the series that it's immoral to to breed tiger cubs and then he goes to being a huge breeder of them and selling them all over the place he goes from saying that PETA is terrible and the animal rights people are terrible to ultimately working with them to try to squash the people that he wants revenge against and so Joe also just demonstrates I think a very fundamental human characteristic of having really wishy-washy ethics uh, as they all do a bit but Carol I think less so I think Carol's had a more consistent moral view for longer uh than than other people have um mm, so yeah. we, i don't know if we want to get into um yeah i'll get into that a little bit i i basically see carol and joe and doc antle as more or less equal ethical stature i think they're running essentially similar hustle hustles um the only difference being that carol has gone the kind of institutionalized respectable pathway and joe and joe has gone this kind of like anarchist american libertarian pathway and uh yeah i mean i think you could you could you could nitpick and and compare the the differences in their behaviors but it seems to me they both love cats they're both driven by an ambition to accumulate their own cats accumulate fundraising and power and resources and 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 political success in their in their construction of a kind of cat owning empire of one kind or another <laughs> so you think that they're all e- kind of equal moral agents more or less yep is is my intuition yeah i i think you get different kinds of virtue signaling basically carol is virtue signaling you know empathy and kindness and and what john height would call that sort of kindness moral foundation whereas joe is more virtue signaling freedom like his life is all about freedom and sort of flouting social convention and like mullet-haired, libertarian, gay, running for president and governor, and just living a life, you know, in rural Oklahoma that is in many ways kind of a quintessential 21st century American freedom-loving life Mm. with drugs and guns and gay sex and multiple, you know, uh, husbands and, and all of that. Mm. So I think they're both kind of virtue signaling. Right. And then depending on which of those values, kindness versus freedom, you tend to subscribe to, 
you'll you'll be differentially sympathetic to to Joe versus versus Carol. True. Well, but one quick clarification, I will say Joe does do more fucked up things than Carol. Like he does ultimately put a hit out on on someone, which is pretty bad. Um and I think Another thing that doesn't get quite enough attention that I think is probably the most fucked up thing about Joe, the most kind of psychopathic thing about him, is the way that he kind of uh, lures in vulnerable young men, feeds them meth, and then kind of like brainwashes them and vaguely doesn't allow them to leave the property. <laughs> I, I actually think that doesn't get enough attention. That Other than putting a hit out on Carol, that, that if my memory serves, was kind of the worst, that, one of the worst things that Joe does. Um, I just think in Joe's case, he's dumber than Carol. So that gets him off a little bit on the ethical stature. Like, I think he's just kind of crazy and dumb. Whereas Carol seems uh, a little bit more... Uh, intelligent and a little bit more capable. So that's how I see it. Yeah, she does seem more, and, and Doc seems very intelligent and very capable. I think this gets us into a good segue in part, um, which is the, the kind of very thorny issue of exploitation. Who is exploiting who? And I think the film tried to make this equivalency about exploitation, showing that all these people were working for Carol for free and they all had these different shirt colors and then they were working really hard as volunteers mm-hmm. um, to end up with a, with a nicer shirt color or a higher status shirt color. And so in the film, uh, all these people who hate Carol because they're trying to you know, she's trying to shut down their business are saying that she's exploiting people just as much as, uh, Doc Antle, um, or Joe Exotic is. And actually, uh, I think that uh, there's a video that you guys might be interested in watching. It's Howard Baskin on YouTube, basically talking about all the things the film got wrong. So the one day that they show, uh, everybody at Big Cat Rescue is the day where there's uh, hundreds of people that come through and there's hundreds of volunteers working. But the volunteers don't work uh, every day necessarily. Most of them don't. And so that's the day when everybody uh, happens to be there. But getting to this kind of question of exploitation. So Doc Antle uh, apparently has all these girlfriends and wives. One of the women who left his compound is called uh, Barbara, a.k.a. Bala. She leaves. And then Joe has got multiple uh, different husbands slash uh, boyfriends. So he's got... Surprisingly um, handsome boyfriends, by the way, for Joe. Okay. So like, let's get into this. So I have a real problem with this idea about, about exploitation and about older partners and younger partners. This thing has become this idea has become really controversial about older people and younger people. Like the younger people are always being somehow exploited and the older people are always getting the benefit. Mm. I think it's because the people who are making the rules are young people and they're, they have these ideas that beauty and youth is the, the ultimate currency, but these young people were getting something out of it. Uh, you know, they were getting a place to stay. They were getting status and clout and resources, but they weren't allowed to leave. Well, so I think with Joe's, uh, with Joe's husbands, they, yeah, they were said that they had to stay there, but they didn't actually have to stay there. They could have left. So I think it was just that he constrained their worldview. And then with, uh. But you don't take that as a serious thing, like constraining someone's worldview over years and feeding them drugs in this kind of cultivated long-term process. Like you don't think that's a legit type of serious kind of aggressive conditioning of someone? I think that you always have to think about what somebody's life would be like if they weren't in that context. So, you know, let's say that somebody is dominating somebody's life and controlling their every move, but their life actually ends up being much more flourishing and comfortable. They end up actually being a lot happier than they would be making their own stupid decisions. I think the kind of person who 
does meth all day long and then shoots himself by accident is probably not the kind of person who would have had a much better life outside of Joe's influence. I think it's an interesting position for sure. And and you make good arguments in favor of it. I'm just kind of curious, like, is there a limit for you? Like, would you bite the bullet of like, if I have a large spacious house, can I go rally up some homeless people and like kind of lure them into my house and then start brainwashing them for their own good, right? If six months later or two years later, they're in a better situation than they were when I found them homeless. Like, is there a limit to that? Or at what point does that become unethical? Yeah, I think I, I I think that basically every professional career track that's guild based that involves a guild like doctors or dentists or lawyers or professors restraining supply and bringing in a lot of young people in a kind of pyramid scheme. And like, you'll get a master's or a PhD and and you'll (laughs) work really hard as an associate in the law firm and maybe you'll make a partner or you'll work as a, you know, resident and maybe you'll become a surgeon or you'll do a PhD for years and get paid shit and maybe you'll become a professor. Mm. Like, I don't think any of us are in a position to sort of judge, you know, the exploitativeness of these other industries like big cat um, zoos or rescues Mm. because... Young people are routinely exploited by almost every career path. But does your comment here justify Joe, or does it simply de-justify the institutions you're criticizing, which maybe de- are just as bad right. as Joe? I'm just I'm just pointing out we have these kind of double standards. Sure, yeah. Where two two double standards. One is legit white collar professions when we exploit young people, right, as adjunct professors or grad students, or um, you know, the medical profession exploits young people like like young nurses doing the vast majority of medical care and the doctors getting all the money that's we just take that for granted it's only in these weird industries like you know big cat zoos that that exploitation becomes particularly noticeable the second double standard is you know joe probably exploits these young men his husbands jc john travis and dylan Almost exactly the way that that Doc Antle, you know, arguably exploits his women, Moxa, China, Reiji, Barbara, etc. It's just we're so used to not being allowed to criticize gay men for that kind of age gap behavior. And heterosexual men who are sort of polygamous, you know, we see them as much, much worse because Mm. taking advantage of young women is considered Mm. morally more culpable than taking advantage of young men. Well, the implicit assumption there is that these women have less agency. They have less, the the kind of major idea is that women are socialized to be agreeable and thus it's even more difficult for them to leave these kinds of scenarios than it is for a young man to, who has not been socialized to be agreeable and he probably has more agency but you're going to see me biting a lot of utilitarian bullets in this conversation today because there's a lot of very interesting utilitarian thought experiments so in the whole thing. do you bite the homeless person in my house experiment? yes i do absolutely yeah. and 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 just just generally i think exploitation is a much slipper slipperier concept than people really give it it credit for i'm not somebody who values free agency or independence merely for its own sake. I only value free will and agency insofar as it helps people have better lives. And if you could put me in a cage and get me to do much better things that are in line with my, you know, my, my goals than I can do on my own, I would say Mm. that that's, you know, that's, that's fine. So here's Uh, the thing. I'm not sure the utilitarian case works for Joe because 
things actually did not turn out very well for Travis or for the other guy, right? So, you know, if, if he brought up Travis and the other guy, what was the other guy's name? The first boyfriend, John. husband, John, you know, if he brought these people into, you know, a self-development pathway that from which they emerged, uh, extraordinarily successful, happy human beings, then okay, I might allow for the, the kind of brainwashing cult experiment of his compound. Uh, but one of them ends up killing himself accidentally. And the other one, I think, ends up quite unhappy with Joe. The first also. first so, husband is in jail. So I'm not sure there's even just an object level utilitarian defense of yeah, Joe's first, brainwashing first scheme. I, I'm pretty sure that Travis would have ended up in jail too if he hadn't been with Joe. Um, but I, I have no idea. But what I'm saying is that these guys were also kept around. They were not just kept around by drugs, but they were also kept around by trucks and by status and by conspicuous uh, consumption, the th- kind of things that they were bought in, mm-hmm. in the context that they had. And from what it seems like, I, I don't I can't tell if Dylan is actually gay or not, but what it seems like is that all these other guys, Travis and John, were actually not gay. And so the only thing that arguably you could say – that is, you know, we were actually talking about this the other day, that if somebody's not really gay and somebody lures them in and keeps them from giving you grandchildren, I can see why Travis's mom was so upset, not just because Joe talked about Travis's balls at the funeral, <laughs> but also because she doesn't have any grandchildren because of Joe. Mm. And that even if Travis had completely fucked up his life, he probably would have knocked somebody up along the way if mm. it hadn't been for Joe. Mm. I, I think a fascinating thing about the series is, Ethically, it's kind of a Rorschach test in terms of which things you notice that each of the lead characters does that strikes you as really, really deeply unethical. For me, <laughs> there's so many to choose from. There's so many to choose from. For me, actually, the most culpable thing that Joe did was he was a bad role model in terms of gun safety. <laughs> he's always pointing loaded guns at people, especially when he's high on coke or meth. And Travis kind of mm. takes that Seriously, he imitates Joe, you know, his older husband, and Travis is completely reckless with firearms. And ev- anybody like me who's taken gun safety courses it would be absolutely horrified. Like, no matter how much you love guns, Joe was not a good role model for gun safety. And the result is his husband accidentally shoots himself in the head with a loaded gun, misunderstanding that just because the mag's out doesn't mean there's not one in the chamber. And And that, for me, is a a point where Joe is actually more ethically culpable than doing a sort of fucked up attempted murder for hire. That shit was sad, dude. That was fucked up. That scene. Yeah. I mean, but you, there was, a, there was a scene of him driving a four wheeler before that and he looked like he was just being so reckless. He could have died 10 other different oh, that's ways. Right. There was also that, that subplot where he was increasingly desperate about his own life and depressed and, and in a and bad place. And he was just place. doing crazy shit. Yeah. Like, it, you know, he had that very interesting young male depression, uh, probably because there, he's a straight guy who's, you know, monogamous with a gay guy. Um, right. partly that is that, you know, he had, he had no other kind of outlet. I would be really hard pressed to figure out what I think is like the most, um, yeah, the, the, the worst thing that anybody's done. But there is this kind of contrast between sort of sexual exploitation. So what Doc Antle and Joe are doing and what Carol is doing, which I don't really think is exploitation, which is sort of status exploitation. And so Bala, the woman, her, she was called Bala and now she's called Barbara. She was actually staying with Doc Antle and she was one of his women for a while. And she says that they just decide that she's going to get breast implants and they just drive her to get to get them. And so she talks about how she really wasn't on board with that. And the audience, I don't know how the average person feels, but that just seemed like 
like bullshit to me. Like if you don't want to get breast implants, then you just leave. <laughs> and maybe these people um, are being being brainwashed. But it's it's just so difficult to draw these lines, given mm-hmm. that we get fed false information all the time. Our governments, our schools. Uh, high status people uh, there's always some degree of manipulation or brainwashing happening it's just that people throw stones about when other people are doing it for other reasons that they think are illegitimate yeah one thing this movie really updated my beliefs about was something what we actually debated a week ago before we even watched this which was uh the susceptibility of straight men to becoming gay or what we what a lot of people call kind of the fluidity of sexuality this movie genuinely updated my viewpoints on that because if you remember a week or two ago when we debated this after some movie we watched i was on i was making the case that uh i thought straight men were less susceptible to becoming gay or experimenting with with gay sex uh than y'all did and uh after watching this i'm much closer to you all now and actually I did not realize, I really did not realize how relatively easy it is for uh, otherwise straight men to just kind of play around with being gay or kind of trick themselves into being gay for a little while if it's convenient. Yep. It, it, it was a shocking kind of social scientific uh, expose of how that works and what that looks like. And it updated my uh, my beliefs about that. Yeah, I mean, for me, that was based on a, a few stories hearing from men that I know who are like, well, I'm really straight most of the time, but I let this guy give me a blowjob. It's a funny story that I told you about like this guy that I knew who asked him this, this man for directions. The guy gave him directions. He's like, can I give you a blowjob? He's like, no, that's terrible. He walks a couple blocks away and he's like, actually. And then, you know, so these, this kind of sexual fluidity. Um, but also the, the rate of gay for pay men, both in terms of escorting services and also in porn. A lot of men who do, like there's a very famous porn star. Um, I think his name's Danny D who was a gay porn star before now he's a straight porn star. And, uh, you know, what, what we hear from people like Mike Bailey and sex researchers is that most men don't show bisexual patterns of arousal in laboratories. Like if you show the average man who says he's straight gay porn, nothing is going to happen. But I think that when it comes to behavior, it's pretty different. Mm. So just to circle back to my point about <laughs> the, the double standards of, of sexual exploitation, you know, all of Doc Antle's partners, Moksha, China, Rajni, you know, Bala. There's like ten other. Were, ones were apparently like straight women, so at least they're sexually involved with their preferred sex. Whereas most of Joe's, you know, young men, um, John, Travis, possibly JC, we don't know about Dylan, were primarily straight. So he's actually, you know, if you want to call it brainwashing or exploitation, he's actually switching their sexual orientation, which is perhaps even more egregious ethically than, you know, fulfilling someone's... Or is he just expanding their minds? <laughs> what's it called when you when you send somebody... What's it called, like, where they try to... Like, sex relocation therapy, where they try to change your sexual orientation? Reprogramming? Oh, or, yeah, something like that. It, Who knew? You know, if you take a... If you've got a gay kid, you just introduce him with it to a good-looking rich woman with meth, and he could be straight too. <laughs> right. I think a lot of it, though, is conditional on... The fact that these young men are kind of coming from the the bottom rungs of society and they don't have much to lose and they don't have any uh, particular kind of status or visibility in society. So the kind of reputational cost of just being gay for a little bit to get meth is virtually zero. And I do think that the the susceptibility of a straight man kind of experimenting with gay sex for various reasons is largely conditional on 
that status level. Right. And, and, and I think it's unlikely that Joe's husbands, like that this was their first rodeo. You know, I think they were probably used to having sugar daddies. Right. One sort or another. Well, they were really young. They Maybe Joe. they were like 19. But I think you think about how Joe got his status when they say the people that were working for him were all people who had felonies, who really had no other place to live, nowhere else to go. So he was sometimes picking people up at the bus station, you know, people who really, this was, this was their last possible option in life and that was how he gained their loyalty was because they really had nowhere else to go and nowhere else to be whereas doc antle has this mystical and spiritual aura around him Mm. you know he has these everybody apparently is vegetarian at his at his um uh, what's it called zoo i guess and so he he has this special charisma that gurus have Mm. uh, whereas carol was simply just attracting people through through simple morality and virtue. Doc Antle also had his shit together way, way, way oh, more. He seemed to really have his so shit there, like the yeah. trait would be conscientiousness would be the major major differentiator there. Like Doc Antle has his shit together. Joe crazy all over the place. I could actually tell that Joe Antle had his sorry Doc Antle had his shit together merely by the way he was riding the elephant because the elephant goes exactly where he wants to go and that elephant has got no bidding he's just got a stick and that's it and so the way he took that elephant down I was like if you could train an elephant that well then you actually do have your shit together and I can actually see how he had all those women that were wrapped around his finger if you could train an elephant that well you know not saying that women are easier to train than an elephant probably harder to train but still seriously this documentary is so crazy there's so much crazy shit that I'm I forget about some of them and then it comes back into my mind I'm like how did that also happen and I forgot about that like for instance when uh joe uh sets fire to a whole part of his compound in a idiotic completely hopeless effort to somehow like erase the evidence of uh a laundering crime that he kind of unwittingly committed do you remember that yeah i remember kills alligators in the process oh they were actually michael jackson's alligators no shit (laughs) somebody somebody tweeted they're like Like, this series is so crazy they didn't even mention that these were michael jackson's alligators." how crazy does a documentary have to be for that scene to be, have escaped my mind until yeah, just or now. like or like the end where yeah there's there's so much uh so crazy shit but yeah i remember being in utter shock after that happened for like f- 10 minutes just imagining all the footage we could be watching that was now lost forever because mm. they had so much crazy shit that we saw anyway can you imagine how much crazy shit there would have been if there was an extra five years of them recording him every day right um right but uh yeah, Should we keep so, going on the questions? Yeah, so we've covered some of the cult-like questions. Um, Marabain asked, uh, the, the documentary filmmakers were way too unattentive to the whole cult aspect. Mm. Um, and Lady Wheatfield asked, um, how were Joe, Doc Antle, and Carol able to develop their followings, extract their labor so effectively, and keep people on their side after everything that happened? I think we've covered some of that. But I think it is notable that you know each of these three um, zoos, GW Zoo, um, Big Cat Rescue, and Tigers, all had these these underlings and these these social hierarchies, and you know proximity to the leader, whether it was Joe Carroll or, or Doc, was sort of your social your source of social validation. It was also your your source of kind of sexual access to the leader, at least in the case of Joe and Doc. And um, these were their own little subcultures, their own little worlds with their own rules, social norms, you know, vocabularies. And I think this is a 
great thing about reality TV of this sort that it gives you these windows into these weird, weird little subcultures. I think with, with you're having a, a center, if you have a zoo or something with these huge, dangerous animals, it actually makes there being these ironclad rules that you don't question even more plausible at the outset. So cults work fine even without that. But if you can imagine going somewhere where actually you have to do everything I say exactly how I say it, otherwise you might die, that mm. is an incredible draw. That's a good point. Yeah, it's like extra cult cohesion to have uh, big, scary animals around. Absolutely. Let's get some. So, <laughs> and um, we're going to talk about the ethics of of the animal stuff, you know, in a in a little bit. But I think um, just to kind of wrap up this this portion of our uh, our entertainment, um, you know, Diana and I are are out as uh, polyamorous, and this show, maybe more than any other reality TV show I've I've seen. Um, involves a lot of people in open relationships of one sort or another. Well, there's there's two people who have harems. It's not... So I have no idea if Doc Antle's wives are allowed to have sex with each other or have... Uh, certainly Jeff, what's his face? Oh, yeah, that uh, Jeff Lowe, he was also... Yeah. Man, that was... The, the thing about him trying to get a sexy nanny and him telling his wife that she had to oh, go to the so gym... Oh, so cringe. That was so cringe. It so was, basically three out of three of the male tiger cult leaders are poly in one way or another but there's not any indication that carol is no a few yeah yeah somebody on twitter was like oh you know there was this woman singing and spinning around and while she was singing this tiger song um carol's rubbing her um, husband's leg and she rubbed her husband's leg like they had swung with that woman i think that this reading a lot into that situation (laughs) i think that uh carol and then also people were saying um what's the likelihood that carol was like walking around on the street by herself at night and that she wasn't hooking at like 19 or whatever she was doing right right so i don't think either of those things are are recriminating and i actually don't like Howard, there's a picture of, of Carol with Howard on a leash and they're like, look at this fucking cock, right? But I, I do, the, he doesn't seem like the kind of dude who, who, who gets any play. Like I don't think that they're poly and I don't think, uh, that they're, they're interested in that kind of thing. They seem very happily monogamous. In fact, if you watch that video that he made about Carol, he said that they've, um, never had an argument. They've never had a harsh word and they never had to apologize to each other for anything they've ever said in 15 years. And, um, that does not. Yeah, I don't know any poly couples who never have to apologize. I don't know any monogamous couples who've never, you know, have never argued. But certainly, you know, running a big cat center the way that they do and never having an argument. Um, So to me, though, real quick, that is a data point in favor of the inference that Carol did not kill her husband. In my view, that's one of the the big data points. The the seeming happiness of Harold and their stability. Um, does not look to me like a woman who killed her previous husband. Over and over again, I was incredibly impressed by how calm she was when she was talking about people killing her. If there was a cable network or whatever, public access television show where I was shot in effigy, where it would look like my head was in a jar and somebody was, uh, this is another thing that Joe did. Joe f- uh, had a blow up doll with Carol's face on it, who's, 
who he fucked with a dildo on, <laughs> on TV all the time. If somebody was doing that, like I'm pretty chill and like people can say <laughs> stuff about me on Twitter and stuff. But if somebody was doing that kind of stuff every day, I would be a little obsessed and I would also be upset when I talked about it. And so we were saying that it's just amazing psych, you know, maybe it's, it's an even better indicator that she's like a stone cold psychopath, that mm. she is really chill about mm. somebody wanting to murder her right. all the time. And so, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> I'm just saying that it makes perfect sense to me that somebody could not have an argument with somebody for 15 years who does what they want and who's really loyal to them and also kill somebody who was disloyal to them and who didn't do what they wanted. Mm. But back to the polyamory for a second. <laughs> yes. Sorry. <laughs> I please. think one, like a lot of people are confused about the difference between polyamory and polygamy. And what I what I do see is people having, you know, multiple relationships here. Like, it's very striking. Joe has one of the only filmed, like, three-way gay weddings I've ever seen where he's simultaneously marrying two husbands. You don't see that every day. Um, however, however, I didn't see much evidence that that was genuinely polyamorous in the sense that I don't think Joe would have been very happy with his husbands, John or Travis or Dylan, fucking other people or even each other turn, or, or each other and i suspect doc antle was more of a polygamist than a polyamorous i'm not sure but i don't think he would have been happy with moksha china or rajni being with other men i imagine most cult leaders aren't so this is not- his girls were pretty hot by the way yeah, they- like i was surprised how hot they were at least some of them his main his main his main piece was Pretty hot for for Doc Antle, I think. Yeah, I thought they were they were all beautiful, and he he chose them for that. I think that if they weren't, it looks like they also almost all of them got plastic surgery of some kind or another. But this is very common. If you look at Siegfried and Roy, they're gay dudes, and they had these beautiful girls, you know, also taking pictures. There's a picture anyway. Yeah. Attractiveness is very important in showbiz, also. Mm. Yeah, and and then I think Jeff Lowe, who's sort of more of an old school, you know, swinger. Also not a great role model for polyamory, right? But I suspect that out of, out of all three of the guys, Joe, Doc, and, and Jeff, he was probably the most open to his wife potentially being with other people. But wait, which one do you think? Um, Jeff Lowe, the, the Las Vegas. You think he was most open to his wife being with other people? Cause that's more of a swinger social norm. Oh, I did not get that impression. I, they I, might have been swingers. They might have not. But you know, Jeffrey and I have lamented this several times because the, the other most commonly cited polyamorous couple on television, House of Cards, who are also psychopaths. Right. <laughs> right? So, like, it doesn't really seem like there's very good representation here. So, who in this is the best role model None for polyamory them. relatively? Well, maybe, I guess, I guess, known Joe would not be. It's also funny, there was a... <laughs> When when they did the three way wedding and Joe kissed both of his husbands and they did not kiss each other, I was really wondering if they were going to kiss each other because a thruple wedding, which I've never been to because I don't know people like that, um, is generally all three people are in an equally uh, close relationship. And I know a woman who was in a thruple with two other women for some time, but it really only worked because they were all living in three separate cities. They were all equidistant from each other, so there was no chance for two of them to get closer to each other. And when that did happen, it all fell apart you know as, as dan savage has said many times he's been to thruple weddings i haven't but he's never been to a thruple five-year anniversary um, these things tend not to mm. be very stable or lasting 
So Jeffrey, you're like, you're writing a book about polyamory. What, what do you think, what was the biggest lesson in this kind of uh, cornucopia of many social science experiments? I think a key thing for me is that people with this degree of dark triad traits, this degree of narcissism are actually, they, they would suck so badly at doing proper ethical polyamory because they're simply too possessive. Like most of these guys I think would not actually be capable of sustained multiple relationships with partners who were also seeing other partners because their narcissism and, and, you know, manipulativeness just wouldn't allow that. So I think sadly what a lot of sort of mainstream normie Americans will take away from this series is, oh my God, polyamory and polygamy, which they will confuse, um, can't possibly work or it'll only work for, you know, fucked up psychopaths like this. I think that's <laughs> the wrong takeaway. The, the takeaway is these kind of psychopaths would not actually be able to do ethical polyamory that, that looks anything like the kind of polyamory that polyamory subculture actually knows and respects. Yep. What's interesting is that there's also a third variable which confounds all of this, which is much less sexy and much less interesting, but probably very important, which is the fact that these people are also sharing a workplace. Yeah. So maybe the real lesson is if you're going to be poly and you're going to smoke meth, just don't work at the same place together. And That's, then, you yeah. know, you have space, you have, you know, personal spheres and, and you can work things out. Or at least don't work at the same place if you're having multiple relationships and there's a lot of powerful firearms around. And big cats that can kill you. <laughs> <Big cats. laughs> All right. So now it's time to talk a little bit about animal ethics, an obvious gorilla in the room. No pun intended. <laughs> So this is a good topic to talk about because I used to be kind of a militant vegan and I'm, I'm not really anymore, but I'm still mostly vegan. Um, Jeffrey, uh, agrees with the ethics broadly, but he donates money to vegan outreach. So he basically offsets and he eats meat and Justin doesn't give a shit at all about him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say that exactly, but, uh, yeah, I eat animals and, uh, maybe I'm less invested in those concerns than you guys. Yeah, there's sure. a good, there's a good spread of views. I think we had this discussion one time where I was like, you know, Justin, I've told you about the eggs and chickens and stuff multiple times. And you're like, I, 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 I've taken it all on board. I just don't care. <laughs> but to be fair, Jeffrey never cared much until Diana. Right. And in some sense, like you're, you pay, you, you, you pay to offset your animal eating kind of like for Diana. Right. Yeah, I do two kinds of offsetting. One is I give money to, to vegan outreach. And second, I, I sort of offset by teaching my psychology of effective altruism class. And we actually spend two weeks talking about animal sentience and welfare in class. So I sort of help convert some of my students to caring more about it kind of on my behalf. And you don't eat chicken personally. Right. And I don't eat chicken or small fish or, you know, other things where there's a lot of suffering per pound of meat. Yeah, although and, you still have to confer with me. You're like, is duck okay? Because ducks are rapists. And I'm like, well. <laughs> the point is that we should we should have an interesting and uh, hopefully only somewhat retarded conversation or debate about but, animal But Justin ethics. said that you only care about animals because of me, and that's not right, is it, Jeffrey? 
Oh no, I've always cared about. <laughs> well, you ampli- you amplified my care when we started dating All right. five, five let's, years let's, ago. Let's get it. This is actually one area that I have changed my mind about probably the most. So back when I read Animal Liberation about ten years ago, I became a vegan. That's an, uh, Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. That's a great book. I became a vegan kind of overnight, and I was really against even things like pet ownership. And now, just thinking more about this stuff, my my views have really changed. And stuff about um, zoos and animal keeping are, are really, really complex. So I'm just going to set the stage here a little bit. Basically, um, there's three different ethical views or not really three, more like two different ethical views uh, on animals and keeping them in captivity that are presented in um in Tiger King. So Carol basically says it's okay to keep these animals in captivity, but only because we have to, we have to keep them in captivity until the ends of their lives because we brought them into the world, but there should be no tigers or lions or big cats in captivity at all because their lives in captivity suck. And so we should no longer breed these animals. Whereas, uh, some of the other people like the guy who's had a monkey around his shoulders the whole time. Now his name, I forget. Um, he was basically saying, of course, if you have an endangered animal, you want to breed them. You want to breed them as much as possible. And so saying that we shouldn't breed tigers and, and these other animals, lions aren't really endangered. Um, we shouldn't breed these animals is just as, is a bad idea and we should breed them as much as possible. And then what you see with, with Joe Exotic is he goes from saying that we shouldn't be breeding cubs at all to, of course, he's breeding cubs because it's the only way that he can actually support the meat habit and the feeding of all these adult um, lions and tigers and other big cats that he has is actually through, um, you know, making money by showing off with these uh, with these cubs. And so this is a very uh, complex uh, issue. A couple other things to mention here is that with Joe Exotic, um, he got in trouble at the very end. One of the counts against him was killing five different tigers. But uh Doc Antle, as Joe Exotic has kind of snitched on him, uh, apparently uh, gasses cubs after they've been alive for a few weeks. And you might think this is like a crazy thing. It's a crazy practice. Uh, but actually, this is actually not that uncommon. Uh, there's a practice known as zoothanasia. It's just basically euthanasia done in zoos. And it seems like there's American and uh, different views in America and Europe about what should be done with these animals. So there is a Copenhagen zoo uh, whose director is called Bengt Holst, and he spoke to the New York Times. Uh, this was back in 2012 that this article came out. And basically what they did is they started allowing uh, these different animals to have babies as enrichment. So they had a leopard uh, mother and she had two cubs. And then I think when they got two years old, uh, they were euthanized because even though they're endangered, the, the genes of these particular cubs, they were already overrepresented. They didn't want them to be inbred, and so they just killed them. Similarly, at some of these places, they kill um, excess animals or surplus animals. It's also called, uh, I think, euthanasia or management euthanasia. And what some people were accusing the zoo of doing was actually just killing these cubs after they weren't cute anymore. You know, so that the, these, the, the zoo was getting a lot of visitors because these cubs were so cute and then they were killing them when they became inconvenient. Now, what these zoos are doing is actually totally legal because what they're, what they are doing is trying to improve the genetic diversity of these animals that they're keeping in captivity. The last other couple things I'll say before I, 
kind of open it up more is um, there's also ligers and, and tigons, and these are hybrids. And they're not sterile, but they're really not useful for any kind of preservation of the species. They're really only useful because they're entertaining to look at. And Doc Antle has got the biggest big cat in the world called Hercules, who is a liger, who I... Um, I posted this on my Twitter uh, of, of a couple hours ago. So uh, these these people are all doing various things, and but there's way more animals these these big cats in America than there are in India or in the wild anywhere else. And I used to think that these animals should only exist in the wild; that it was terrible to keep them in captivity. But you know, I started spending more and more time reading about actually how shitty animals' lives are in the wild. You watch any documentary series, um, what happens with a, a male lion, for example, if he takes over a new harem, is he kills all the cubs. This zoo director that I was just talking about. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. Why, do, why would he kill all oh, the sorry. cubs? Uh, so if a new male lion takes over a harem, he kills all the cubs because he's basically doesn't want to be a cock. He kills the cubs. Uh, so that he doesn't look after them. And not so that, his cubs. Not his some cubs. Other, some yeah. other guys' cubs. So the male, the, the, the new male lion, he comes in, and if the females have already had cubs, he kills all their cubs, not only so that he doesn't take care of them, but also so the females will go into estrus faster, and so he can reproduce with them faster. It's just like how human stepfathers beat their stepchildren. Well, right? actually, it's been compared to that more than once. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, you know, animals' lives in the wild are pretty shitty, and animals' lives in captivity are shitty, but like in in different ways. So, just to, to totally anthropomorphize this, because I don't think there's a problem with that. You know, would you rather have to um, hustle for your work? You know, work all the time to try to make a living, uh, but you also are outside. You have all this enrichment. Or would you rather have somebody uh, give you food and video games, and you're not allowed out? Which is a little bit what we're like now, right? So, you know, which one would you, would you rather? And I used to think it was just a no-brainer that these animals' lives are better in the wild, but their, their lives are actually, um, different, uh, and possibly, uh, uh, who knows, in, in captivity. And so this, these are questions. People also ask these questions if they keep indoor cats. Um, versus uh, outdoor cats. And uh, and one last thing I'll say is Ben Tolst, who is this Copenhagen Zoo director, he said, in the wild, 80% of these cubs die. So what we're doing is basically just like what happens in the wild. These cubs die in the wild, and we're euthanizing these cubs. And the mother leopard, who had two wonderful years with these cubs, and who was really not bored at all because she was taking care of these animals, her, her young, she actually will never know that her her young were euthanized. Um, in her view, you know, in the animal's view, um, they're they've just been they've just left home, and so you know that these are complicated questions. Should we breed animals in captivity? Should we allow people to cuddle with cubs in public in malls? And um, is it okay? Um, is it ethical or moral to euthanize animals when they're no longer entertaining or when they become inconvenient? Yes, we actually had some suggestions from folks on Twitter about some of these animal ethics issues. For example, Andy Tippy asked, is raising a tiger for a few months and killing it when it's no longer valuable for cute pictures any worse than raising veal calves and then just eating them? Um, and you might think, well, food is a less trivial thing than social media narcissism. But, you know, why eat veal? Oh, it's just marginally more tender than standard meat. And you've never you know, had the, a Wiener schnitzel and the veal calves <laughs> suffer terribly. You know, they're tender because they can't move and they can't develop their muscles. Um, so why do we have this double standard, you know, veal versus, you know, euthanizing big cat kittens? 
Yeah. So I, I, I used to just think this was, this was completely wrong. And now you have to kind of consider what's the harm in existing versus not existing. Uh, and there's been some popular treatments of this. Uh, there's a book called, uh, Never Let Me Go and a film called Never Let Me Go. Um, which spoiler, they, uh, take young people, they bring them into the world. And these are young people who are genetically not predisposed to do great things. Uh, this is a, a subtext. And so they are raised in group living. They don't have to get an education. They have a great time. And then when they're 25, they're harvested for their organs. And so is it better to be brought into existence and live Wait, into... is this fiction or non-fiction? This is fiction. I mean, depends on where you live, but yes, <laughs> this is fiction. Um, these, so is it better to never exist or is it better to have a wonderful life until you're 25 and then be harvested for your organs? And these are really difficult uh, problems. To me, you know, my militant vegan self back when I was 27, 28, I would have just thought that, that, you know, Joe Exotic was the worst person in the world to take these tiger cubs out for people to cuddle and hold and take pictures with. But, you know, human amusement, harm for human amusement is not an alien concept. You know, you like to watch MMA fighting. Those are people you know they're they're being paid a lot of money in many cases but they're really de- you know deeply physically hurting each other and we're all being entertained by that that pain and and physical trauma um so is entertainment a legitimate reason to cause suffering and pretty much everybody depending on the context will say yes in some contexts and and no in others and i think that probably mma fighting is is causes more pain to the people involved than a tiger cub being cuddled by strangers. Mm. Yeah. I'm just going to go out and say, I think people should be free to breed big cats and kill them when they want. I'll just kind of set the stage with a yeah. bold statement. You're uh, going to be the uh, anchor. I, th- that's just my intuition. I don't have this uh, yeah. extremely well thought out, but that's my intuition to be a Frank. And I think this is the intuition of a lot of ethical vegans also is that if you could raise animals to eat, and they were in good conditions and as happy as animals can be mostly, you know, consistent with farm, farming them food. If they have a happy life and then one bad day at the end, that can be okay. That's not the view of, it's not the that's view, the view of, of a very tiny minority of okay, vegans. It's a view yeah. of a lot of effective altruist vegans. Um, and, you know, you, you get, <sighs> people are just so confused ethically about, about this because um, we have this sort of stereotype of food animals that, oh, they all survive into adulthood and then they're killed at the end of their life. But in fact, Diana, you know more about this than I do. Most animals raised for food are killed as soon as it's economically, you know, rewarding to harvest the meat. They're not having a full adult life. No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, if you look at hogs that are bred for food, they're usually killed uh, when they're a couple years old and on farm sanctuaries where they keep pigs that they raise throughout their adult life. I met one who actually he uh, was walking on his knees because his feet couldn't hold his weight because he had been bred from a long line of hogs that had been killed at two years old. And so genetically he was no longer able to support his actual adult weight. Any and, longer. and how old was he? Like but, what's a typical lifespan of hog? And, I don't and know, but I he think he was like nine years old. Yeah, so the, and yet another ethical double standard is wild animal suffering versus captive animal suffering. Yeah. And anybody who's tuned into Darwinism, you know, Darwin himself, his big insight was, oh my God, animals have way, way more offspring than ever make it into adulthood. The vast majority of, of, you know, infant 
baby animals don't grow up. If they did, then, you know, animals would increase kind of at an exponential rate and we would be knee deep in, in snakes and, and bugs and whatever. And that doesn't happen because of natural selection. So a typical wild animal is often on the verge of starvation, riddled with parasites that are itchy and horrible, um, worried about predators. Worried about them, other members of their own species. Worried about them competition. Up. Yeah. Um, having a hard time finding mates and probably not succeeding and not having, you know, great relationships when they do and being constantly anxious about the offspring they are trying to raise. Yep. So if you were, you know, if you're a wild tiger versus a captive tiger, you have a just totally different set of problems and you have to consider, you know, which one is, is worse. Is it, is it worse to be in a cage with a full belly? Uh, and have this kind of enrichment. These tigers, when I saw the, the, the series, they didn't seem to be doing a lot of stereotypical behavior. Stereotypical behavior is what you often see in big cats in small cages, which I've been to zoos in, you know, I was with a zoo in Portugal when I was a kid where there was a cat pacing back and forth. And that stereotype behavior in bears and big cats is because they don't have their home range and they don't have the enrichment. So they end up engaging in these, in these terrible behaviors. But when I was looking at Joe Exotic's menagerie, Actually, the chimps that he had seemed to be suffering even worse since they didn't even have access uh, to each other. I mean, at least he kept um, the cats with each other. But, so, but thus far, we've only been really thinking about the ethical issue from the perspective of the big cats themselves. You know, are they happy? Are they enriched? But there's just all of these externalities that you you can't ignore. So these cats, like Hercules, the the, the liger, he eats um, I want to say they said it was a two-year-old sized person's um, amount of meat per day. I guess he eats 40 or 50 pounds of meat per day. These animals eat a lot of other animals. And this is also any problem with keeping uh, cats and dogs who are also fed meat. So what you're essentially doing is causing other animals to suffer in order to feed animals that you like better, like dogs about, and cats. What about the pleasure of all the people who experience these animals? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's the quite large. pleasure of the animals themselves. Like some of these yeah. dogs and cats are very, very happy and they've been bred, especially like, you know, there's a kind of eugenic process in order to make uh, really happy dogs. There are dogs who are really happy, even though they're in constant pain because their heads are too small for their brains, but they're, you know, temperamentally happy because they've been genetically raised that way. It's very hard to balance all these things out. Um, but I personally think that it's kind of fucked up to have animals that are factory farmed so that you can keep other animals for entertainment. Well, except, right, Joe was getting a lot of his meat from Walmart as leftover meat that would have been just thrown into landfill because it was technically out of date. So that would have been a great Rorschach test for vegans because if you're an ethical vegan and what you really worry about is, is your meat eating increasing demand for factory farm meat? Joe is actually totally ethical because most of that meat would have been wasted. The other meat that he was getting that would have been wasted otherwise is uh, sometimes cows, when they're actually taken to slaughter, they can't walk to slaughter. And if a cow can't walk to slaughter, then they have to kill it on the spot and then it's not allowed to be sold because it can have diseases. So that that was the other place that they were buying carcasses from. And um, the, the, uh, the other thing is just the externality of these animals being dangerous. There was that Ohio man and he released all these big cats out into the world. And so if we don't have okay. any rule, if we don't have any rules about, you know, the, the, you know, I think pretty much everybody would agree 
uh, that human suffering is important regardless of how you feel about these animals. And so that's just, it's a public menace. So um, if you breed, a, if you breed tigers and then you euthanize them in a way that is painless, is there any ethical problem there at all? Yeah. I mean, some people would say that there is an ethical problem there. So what do, what do you think? Uh, so I think that there is a possible uh, ethical problem in that if they would have enjoyed the rest of their lives, that now, you're depriving them of the rest of their lives. And why do you not extend that to embryos of humans who you think it's justified to abort if they have some sort of uh, serious likelihood of a that's, bad that's disease? That's a very, I mean, but also it, it, there's, a, there's a, another bullet to bite, which is if I think that an animal shouldn't be killed when they're 12 weeks old because they would have enjoyed the rest of their lives, then implicitly I'm endorsing a moral position that says because like let's say Jeffrey and I live in a fairly affluent place and our children would be happy. It's our moral duty to have as many children as possible. It's our moral duty if a tiger on average has a happy life right. to have as many tigers as possible. So how do you, and so it's why? our moral duty to, to bring these embryos into existence as many of them as right. possible because they will have happy lives. I just think just because you think that that's a moral thing to do doesn't necessarily mean that you yourself uh, have to do it, but I'm just saying that this is like super, like super thorny issue. Right. Um, as far as embryos are concerned, I don't think that they directly suffer, and I also don't think that a tiger who's euthanized or gassed uh, likely directly suffers. Right. Um, in these cases, it's also you're grappling a lot with your emotions. So for me, killing an embryo that's like a few cells and that's barely visible has less of an impact than killing a huge, cute baby kitten. So basically what I'm saying is that if you support the right to abortion, you can't have any ethical compunctions with Joe the tiger breeder. I think you should start off <laughs> I'm, that I'm statement being, by saying I'm trolling a bit. Not even trying to be controversial. <laughs> <laughs> so we also had a bunch of um, suggested you know, topic and questions from Twitter from people like EB, Joe Sumner, Donnie Dude, Volks Medicine and Darth Django. Shout out. Um, that were kind of about well, you know, one of Joe's uh, justifications for having his his big cats in his zoo was raise awareness about the big cats so that people are more motivated to save the original habitats from which they come in which Africa and India and so forth. Maybe it was bullshit, but that is a frequent justification yeah. for zoos as public awareness and sort of outreach and propaganda um, institutions yeah. is that this will motivate people to go, oh, cute. Therefore, I must donate more to Greenpeace to save the the habitats, and that's a frequent justification. Um, so that's one ethical issue: is is it okay to have a few zoo animals suffering if it helps save their home habitats yeah. and their species? A couple of interesting points here. Yeah, Mark Beckoff is this guy who's pretty uh, hardcore, like vegan animal rights activist person who also writes for psychology today. And he's written a lot about the euthanasia, euthanizing animals in, in zoos, but he's also, uh, written about the psychology. And it doesn't actually seem that going to zoos or aquaria actually changes people's views very much about these animals or makes them want to do more conservation. I haven't really done a deep dive into this, but it doesn't surprise me at all that people are using a moral justification for simple human entertainment. I think human entertainment is great. And I think that saying human are entertained by seeing leopard cubs or tiger cubs is, uh, is, is not a, just a frivolity. I mean, entertainment is an important, 
uh, motivation. But the endangered species idea that it's important to maintain these species because they're endangered and maintain their habitat um, is interesting to me because a, a tiger who's being euthanized doesn't know, or if he's being killed badly or being uh, treated badly, he doesn't know if he's the fifth member of his species, the last on earth, or if he's the, you know, five billionth member of his species. I don't think a chicken suffers any differently, uh, knowing that there, if, you know, if you could instill in chicken the knowledge that there's nine billion more, or if a tiger knew that it was endangered, I don't think it actually changes their they're suffering at all uh, any more than I think a, a, a human death changes if they know that they're the last speaker of their particular language. Um, so I don't know uh, exactly how that kind of squares with, with the ethics, although people do act like killing an old tiger is way worse because they're endangered uh, than killing any other animal that you might kill on a factory farm. I think we should introduce tigers into the American wilderness just for fun. <laughs> see what happens well people are very confused about this sort of species conservation ethics from a strictly utilitarian viewpoint if you're just focused on sentience and the pleasure and pain of of creatures that can, can experience pleasure and pain you don't actually care about preserving endangered species per se like species don't have interests the way that individual sentient animals have interests and that is actually you know horrifying to most people who are into ecology and sustainability who do think that species have legit moral interests at a kind of collective level. Preserving endangered species is fundamentally also purely about human interests. People want their children to be able to see pandas or leopards or whatever in the future. And I have delved into this with people before. I would ask you if you think endangered species are really important. Would you think it was as important? Let's say we had virtual reality and somebody could actually see an incredibly realistic natural representation of what a leopard or a tiger's life is up close in the wild, the way that they used to live. Or let's say that we had a bunch of genomes of these animals on file so we could recreate the species at some future date if we really wanted to. Would you have as big a problem with these species going extinct if those things were available? I don't think it's actually species extinction itself. It's actually that we won't be able to experience seeing these species. And some people have said other, you know, scientific things like maybe tigers, uh, there's something about the tiger's biology that is the key to curing cancer or whatever, which I think is a very difficult uh, problem to grapple with, but I think it's, it's pretty unlikely. So one of um, Joe's little pet projects was trying to breed ligers in order to kind of recreate this ancient extinct saber-toothed cats. <laughs> and he saw that as kind of one of his missions to kind of increase biodiversity. From a strictly ethical, objective point of view, it seems like recreating an extinct species is just as good as saving an existing species from extinction. Yeah. Yeah, this is also a, a fun thought experiment. There, there were wolves, you know, in, in Western Europe. Um, and, you know, would you bring those wolves back even if they were like terrorizing people because they're yeah. now extinct? Yeah, it's, yeah, Justin's like in favor of, of all the stuff. Well, I just think it would be interesting. <laughs> it would be interesting. And it, I think it would, it would have, um, a salutary kind of hormetic effect on human beings. In, in a way, a lot of parents might actually welcome such a thing in the following sense. Mm. That if you're trying to convince your toddler not to go out because like there's cars and you shouldn't play in the road and you want to minimize the chance of a car accident and killing your kid, 
It's actually very hard to get toddlers to take cars seriously. Bingo. Bingo. <laughs> On the other hand, if you had credible oh, evidence no. that there are like <laughs> gangs of wolves patrolling your neighborhood, it would be much, much easier to convince kids to be cautious about that kind of thing. Bingo. And you might actually have fewer net, you know, toddler deaths from those sort of predation accidents than from car accidents. Also, one of the dumbest arguments, which is really popular, which, which I just want to shit on real briefly, is this idea that, oh, humans should not be, you know, colonizing these animals. We should put them back into the wild. We should respect animals' wild habitat. Bitch, humans are at the top of the fucking food chain. This is the wild. Motherfucking Joe breeding these tigers and uh, making a Disneyland out of them is essentially the wild. We are animals in the wild. And if you want to let, if you want to, if you want to let the animal kingdom sort itself out in pure, uncontrolled wildness, uh, this kind of crazy and kind of human shenanigans that we're observing now, that's exactly the outcome of, uh, you know, the animal kingdom playing itself out. I don't agree with that at all, but I will say well, why? that, well, because I, I don't think the idea that we are at the top of the food chain and the kind of might right makes right argument, it, it, there's a lot of repugnant conclusions of that particular argument. But it follows from the premise of if, if what you want is to quote unquote respect the wild. Yeah. Then, then you, then you could say, maybe yes, you don't like subscribe to that. Sociopaths. No, I don't subscribe to right. that at all. Exactly. I think that if you look at people's, if you like dig down on people's intuitions about preserving nature, preserving endangered species, what we should do with animals in captivity who are members of endangered species. If you dig down on that, it really makes no fucking sense at all if you ask people these various uh yeah that's kind of what i'm saying and like if you had a zoo you know i I was reading about zookeeping and you can either let these animals have offspring and they're really entertained and they're really happy with them for a while or you can give them birth control which also causes other kinds of health problems and then um you don't have any surplus animals as they're called uh but these animals are just like unhappy because they're not breeding and they don't know why they have no young to look after these are just really really hard calls to make and it's not easy to to say anything i i would just say that um you know these animals maybe existing for them is better than than not existing but it seems really it still seems gross to me that we just keep them around for our entertainment but i think the less a less flippant point of uh, uh Version of Justin's point would be, we're all wild animals. We're all part of nature already. Humans like to set ourselves up as ethically superior and as if we have special moral responsibilities that no other animals have. But if you take a Darwinian perspective seriously, then what other species of animals do to each other, including what big cats do to their prey animals, has just as much of an ethical concern to us as anything that other humans do to other animals. Right. We should potentially be intervening in predation in the wild just as much as we intervene when, you know, people who do dog fighting are, are forcing dogs to fight each other. Right. Joe, in other words, is nobly preventing these tigers from, let's say, killing the poor cubs yeah. of another, another. That's another, that's another funny tiger related ethical dilemma is that there are some places I've heard in India and Thailand and places where they actually uh, let loose a cow. And then the tigers rip it apart and people say that that's terrible and disgusting. Mm. And how dare people do that when that would actually happen in the wild? It happens. Predation happens all the time. So it's just humans facilitating predation that people find ethically problematic. Right. But animals, if they do predation on their own out in the wild, it's, it's totally fine. And when you're talking about humans are the wild, right? This kind of ring of sociopaths that we see 
in the series in, in Tiger King, you see also people being punished for some things, but not others. Some people being punished, other people just being let go. It's, it's this looking at how the wild is actually recapitulated in, in human society. And when Joe exotic is talking about being locked up in a cage, it really makes you feel terrible for him. Even though for me, at least I thought he definitely deserved to be in prison for some period of time. I actually think one of the most ethically confounded individuals or situations in the movie is Carol's situation with the animals. And maybe one of you want to represent a different position, but the way I see it, there is no good reason for her to be having these big cats under, under her control because uh, the way I understand her position, she should either be trying to kind of release these cats or, or support these cats transition into some sort of more full existence um, or she should not be collecting them, but she's, she's essentially using them for the express single purpose of attracting tor- paying tourists. No, I don't think she is, but, but that's my view. Uh, she keeps them in a much bigger enclosure and she uh, has them. So the reason that for, for in Howard Baskin's video, he was saying, you know, Joe exotic was like, Oh, look at the, look at the weeds around these enclosures of these big cats. They actually let this, the, 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 plants grow over so that these animals actually have more privacy and they're not as, as much in front of, uh, of people. Um, so why does she need to have them? She needs to have them because these are cats that people have surrendered who have not been socialized around humans and who are also not able to actually live in the wild. These are cats who would die immediately in the wild. They've never caught and killed anything probably in their lives. And they also can't get along with humans. These, you know, if you saw her big cats interacting with people, they were hissing and spitting. See, I'm not sure I buy that because I, I cat, animals are fairly resilient. And if you put them into the wild, they often can evolve pretty quickly to deal with it. Isn't that true? There's a whole uh, study of, of wildlife rehabilitation where they've tried to, to do this. And um, what happens a lot of times with big cats and other animals. So if you look at like meerkats, for example, a mother meerkat will take the stinger off of a scorpion, but leave it intact otherwise. So it can run around. And so her babies get some experience with trying to catch it. If I, if I put you out in the wild, I mean, you might say I could, I could like learn how to hunt and kill stuff, but you're never going to be as good at it. Uh, and so what you would probably be resigning them to, and there's studies about this with, with wolves and stuff is they would, they would largely probably starve to death but there are there are counter examples right of pigs right who go into the wild and all of a sudden they're like rampaging killing machines in the course of a like a very very short period of time pigs can eat vegetation so i think it's an I empirical mean, question yeah. yeah it's an empirical question but i think you know if carol baston was was a sort of consistent utilitarian she would make the argument look there's three things we could do here if you rescue a big cat you could painlessly euthanize it and that would be the logical thing to do if the other two options had net negative happiness. The second option is you keep them, you know, in cages for the rest of their natural life. That only makes sense if you think their daily life is net positive. Yeah, if you think that their life is better than not existing at all. Or, I think- or, the, th- or the third option is you, you reintroduce them to the wild. They'll probably starve to death, but 
you know, they might be able to make it and maybe they'd have a happier life than in. If you think, if you have like an, a nature is good ethos, then that is what you would think would. So in my, my optimal solution, because tigers eat so much meat and because they're so dangerous, uh, in their, when they're around people is that you help everybody who has bred tigers and who has them right now, um, you subsidize them however you need so that they can feed them without actually breeding cubs. And you do that for everybody. So mm. you subsidize everybody that currently owns adult tigers. And then when they get old and sick enough, then you, then you euthanize them. So over time, there would be no longer any uh, zoos um, or, or any like roadside zoos like this. But I, what I was trying to say when I was talking about zoothanasia is that people go to reputable zoos and they think that they're going someplace that's way better than what Joe Exotic or Doc Antle does. And actually these zoos are making many of the same ethical calls. They're just making them with the endorsement of experts. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. But according to what Jeffrey said before, just to kind of close that point real quick about uh, Carol, you put it very well, Jeffrey, in, in that by her revealed preferences, by her behavior, she seems to believe that keeping these cats alive is worth something. Uh, that that's preferable than putting these cats to sleep, which means by implication, ergo, she must admit that Joe is increasing the net utility enjoyed by these animals. Right. And I think this is where the virtue signaling kind of gets away from her because if she really thinks that keeping big cats in cages is bad, then she should bite the bullet and euthanize them all. But instead she keeps them around. She lets visitors come. She fundraises, you know, she has to spend millions of dollars to give them the meat to keep them alive. And I think that's a totally ethically inconsistent position. Her captivity is different than Joe's captivity. It's not that different. It's very different. So actually, if you so on Howard um, Baskin's uh, YouTube, they showed like a flyover view of Joe's zoo versus Carol's zoo. I actually don't remember how many uh, cats Carol Baskins has, but on average, I think that they have more space. Um, so it's actually much harder to give a big cat a facsimile of what they would get in the wild, like enough space, um, or enrichment as than it is like comparatively for chimps. There's a really amazing, uh, chimp rescue in Florida and it's much easier to give chimps some something like that they would have in the wild uh, because they, uh, they they have a very social life, whereas tigers are really um, solitary and they don't even really like, uh, I mean, they are, they can be around each other in confinement, but actually if a tiger was going to have a life that was most similar to being in the wild, it would be all alone except for once a year when it made it or when it was, or was it with its young. Um, but yes, she, um, if you look at uh, Tiger King, Joe Exotic's, uh, zoo, um, the, the cages actually have a, a pebble ground or like some of them have grass, some of them have mud. But what he's trying to do is make it easy to clean so mm. that when people come by, they don't see tiger shit. Right? Yeah, but, but Joe's place has much more interesting humans to hang out with. That's right. <laughs> but the I, mean, other, I mean, the other thing Carol could be doing is she could be taking all that money and buying a huge ranch in Montana that has cattle and also has big cats and let the big cats do their predator natural behavior and hunt cattle and kill them. But nobody would support that because that's not 
That's fucked cute up. cats and kittens. Is that that's really fucked like, up? I mean, from no, an animal it, welfare it, perspective, there's a good argument for that. Also, you, that's amazing entertainment. You could have an extremely successful YouTube you could have and drones, Instagram. Drones yeah. flying around. As I, as I've, as Dude, I've, Jeffrey, as I think as we as have a <laughs> business idea. We have to move forward. On. I've said, I've said to you guys just now, like people, there was such an outcry when uh, cattle were killed by tigers as live entertainment. Uh, I do think it's probably better to be killed by a captive bolt gun um, than killed by a tiger. Although, if you're endorsing tigers being in the wild, then you're endorsing other animals being killed right. uh, by tigers. I'll also say that um, uh, there's probably sedation involved, not just like you saw when Joe was illegally moving out all these cats. You saw him sedating them every five minutes. But if you have people interacting with big cats, uh, so like there's a place called Tiger Temple, I think, in Thailand. And a lot of people go there, and a lot of people have these tiger pictures on their dating profiles. And they uh, keep these tigers basically sedated all day long. And that's another really interesting ethical question. Like, if you could live on volume and just get fed and have people come and cuddle you, is that so terrible? These are all, you know, really, really tricky questions. Well, by revealed preferences, I think a lot of Americans would opt in favor of that. That's right. Um, so the last, oh, sorry, I was going to, I was going to pivot on to you saying that we should domesticate these animals. Uh, yeah, I think we should wrap it up pretty soon. But I'm, one thing Diane and I talked about, you know, afterwards was humans have done a great job of domesticating certain species like dogs and to some degree cats and kind of chickens. But, you know, our ancestors, to my great chagrin, totally failed to domesticate many of the species I think would make great pets in the sense that they're not, um, well-behaved enough, you know, that like you can't sort of toilet train them. They're dangerous to kids, et cetera. But if we had been domesticating for a hundred generations, cool animals like caracal cats or sugar gliders or certain kinds of snakes, that would be great. People could keep these as pets. They would be very safe from extinction because there'd be millions of copies of these individuals in different homes. And we could, in principle, do this. We could have a domestication program like the Russians did to to, um, foxes in the 1950s. And it only takes about 10 or 20, 30 generations to breed an animal so it's significantly less aggressive. That's a really good point. And you could do that to big cats, and that would make them much more kind of sustainable in terms of being pets or entertainment or being around humans in a safe way. And nobody that I've seen is sort of seriously advocating a sort of systematic uh, breeding program to domesticate them. It involves a lot of killing. You know, when they do the, when they domesticated the foxes. Only in the short run, though. No, even in the long run. Oh, I mean, yeah. It, yeah. So the domesticated foxes that they've bred, um, these foxes were actually domesticated on a fur farm. So they were killing tons of foxes already um, in order to harvest them for their fur. So to kill the ones uh, that were un- not tame for their fur faster than they were killing the ones that were tame and then breeding them. Mm. So, and, and those foxes, if you see them now, there are vid- YouTube videos of people who have these various uh, foxes and they're actually not, they're at a kind of intermediate stage of domestication. Mm. Uh, they're not like dogs. But you don't have to kill the discarded ones. You could do something else with them, right? You could put them into one of these other programs we've hypothesized. So in other words, I think what Jeffrey is suggesting is that Carol should be paying Joe to be domesticating the tigers that he's breeding and the ones that are disc through something like iterated embryo selection and the ones that are discarded are not killed 
but are released into my program where they are put into the wild, the wilderness of America or they're just, they're just sterilized and allowed put, to eat cattle all day. Yeah. Or, or something can be done with them other than killing them. That That's much more conscionable, right? I think, I think it's a cool idea to domesticate animals in part because often domesticated animals are domesticated for a happy temperament. And that is a utilitarian win. But I do think that with big cats, because of their generation time, uh, it's also just, you know, very, very out there idea, but that's what you guys came here to listen to. But also aren't, aren't many people against like pet breeding also? Yes. Especially when it comes to pets like pugs or boxers or other kinds of dogs that have endemic So is it like there's, problems. there's unethical breeding, but then is there ethical pet breeding? So like, could we domesticate... Uh, tigers in a way that makes them like resilient, happy, healthy pets. I would say that like, if you were to ask the, the public, should we stop breeding dogs full stop? That like 99% of people would say, no, we should not stop breeding dogs and cats. Well, the reason I ask is because why is this not actually a viable solution? Is there not an equilibrium here where, where Carol would want to, would be much, would be quite happy to pay Joe to breed pets? Carol's I, Carol's moral ideal is that there are no big cats in captivity at all, full stop. And that they're kept wild. That's but, her right. But iterated em- embryo selection at this scale is essentially making a different type of animal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah but I, I mean, so I, would her opposition to big cats in captivity not apply to the new oh, breed? Oh, to a di- to a new domesticated cat. Very weird and an unanswered question. Hot to ask. So that. I think you know one one theme for the last hour or so is that when people think about animal welfare ethics. of people are hopelessly confused and have bizarre double standards and don't think through the implications. I'm hopelessly confused and I have bizarre double standards and and I think about this all the time. I'm not. I figured it all out and I barely ever think about it. (laughs) So, um, yeah, we've, we've gone all the way from a Netflix (laughs) number one most watched, uh, reality TV show to plumbing the depths of animal welfare ethics. So I think, but uh, that's the mark of great TV, I think. The great, (laughs) great audio. Great audio. So, uh, last thing I'll say is, um, what do you guys think, you know, at the end when, when Joe Exotic got, you know, he's going to spend, he's probably going to spend a fraction of 22 years in prison. But when he, uh, was talking on the phone, did you feel bad for him? Did you feel like he deserved or did not deserve his jail time? How do you feel? And would you like to have a beer with Joe Exotic? I, well, yes to that latter one. Get that right out of the way for sure. Of course I'd have a beer with Joe Exotic. I do think he got the short end of the stick. I think he did a lot of fucked up things for sure, but I do think in a lot of ways he is just a very dumb person who in many ways in his own ways, in his own right is a vulnerable kind of person who I think was um, manipulated quite badly in the end. My read on the final situation is that uh, he, he, I'm guessing that he was pretty badly manipulated and ended up taking the fall for uh, a lot of a lot of things he didn't, you know, need to take the fall for. So, yeah, I think he got the short end of the stick. Yes, I would have a beer with him. And generally, yeah, I think he's he's guilty of a lot, but also quite helpless and, and vulnerable. And I think that gets him off a little bit in my uh, calculation. But what do you think, Jeffrey? He's just a very interesting and compelling character. And I think, um, sure, I'd have a beer with him. If I drank beer, <laughs> which I don't, um, I would not do meth with him and I would not go shooting with him because his, his, uh, gun safety is, um, is so appalling that I, that's I would, really the, the thing I'm most, 
most offended by? I would do meth with him one time simply because I've never tried meth and that's about as good a chance to try meth as possible. He seems like an expert on (laughs) how to do it, what to do. Yeah, Yeah, it's another thing I was struck by is like how differently people respond to meth because Travis had beautiful teeth and John did not. And like meth mouth doesn't influence everybody similarly. And what's your final take on Joe? Uh, My final take on Joe. So Joe is very charismatic. I thought he was very compelling as well. You thought he was hot. I thought he was attractive. <laughs> He's a gay man. He does this weird thing with his face that's very much like what tigers do. Like he has like this weird tick. I I thought he was attractive. I, I mean, I'm a totally I, straight man, but I would probably marry him. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, now Jeffrey made me admit, but but this is another one of those cases where I had to disentangle my feelings from kind of my final judgment. Is that even though I thought he was charismatic and endearing, even I thought he was like I really liked him. I still thought he was a terrible person and that he probably deserved what he got. So it's 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 difficult when you like somebody to think that they deserve uh, punishment. But in this case, uh, I really think. Um, you know, he was he was stupid and he's a danger. You know, who knows if he had gotten away with killing one person or had paid somebody and knocked somebody off, how many more people he would have killed. You know, if Carol arguably killed her first husband, it doesn't actually seem like there. You know, there are people who kill one person who's inconvenient and there are people who would kill multiple people who are inconvenient. And I think Joe is the latter. Just imagine saying on YouTube that you're going to kill someone and then going and trying to kill them secretly. It's <laughs> crazy. All right. Well, to everyone listening to this, thank you for hanging out with us. This has been a wild romp through one of the more interesting things I've watched in a long time. Yep. Thanks for listening. Jeffrey, Diana, thanks for hanging out.